Rutgers legendary champions, next generation stars, and tireless ambassadors of the game, sharing their wisdom and guiding your journey to high achievement on the green felt. This is Chasing Poker Greatness with your host, Brad Wilson. What is happening, my friend, and welcome to the Chasing Poker Greatness podcast. As always, this is your host, the founder of ChasingPokerGreatness.com, Brad Wilson, and today's guest on the show is one of the top poker performance coaches in the entire universe, the facilitator of flow, the patriarch of presence, Mr. Jason Sue, who is back for a long-anticipated round two. And no, I didn't mean for that to rhyme, but I'm very happy it did. This round two with Jason Sue features a new CPG format I've dreamt up for return guests that zooms in on some of the most memorable moments in their poker careers, including their biggest influence in turning pro, memorable pots won and lost, the most impactful purchases they've made for their poker career, their most memorable winning and losing sessions, and much, much more. With that said, prepare yourself because Jason Sue is a man who can't help but naturally throw down greatness bomb after greatness bomb every time he opens his mouth. In today's conversation with Jason, you're going to learn the critical mistake he made early in his poker career and how you can go about avoiding said mistake, how binking a multi-table poker tournament for six figures severely hindered his progress as a poker player for a number of years, the cash game poker format, Jason credits for skyrocketing his poker growth, and much, much more. So without any further ado, I bring to you the founder of PokerWithPresence.com, Jason Sue. Jason, good morning, my friend. How you doing? What's up, man? I'm doing great. It's good to have you back. Uh, I say back a little bit loosely because you're kind of in pretty much every episode of the Chasing mm-hmm. Poker Greatness podcast now in some form or fashion, right? Yeah, man. It's uh, But it's been a while since we, we got to speak on the podcast, so this is I'm excited. Good. I, it took me a while to iron out my round two template in a way that I felt complimented the first conversation and lives up to the quality of, of the podcast overall. It's not just a hey, what's been happening over the last four months type type deal? Yeah, you can't, you can't have people just come back and not really bring anything good. So I'm glad, I'm glad you got it all worked out, man. <laughs> <laughs> so we'll start there, actually, just to get a, get a little recap of how things have gone for you since the last Chasing Poker Greatness conversation, which was probably 10 months ago or so. I think it was over the summer, so probably like June. Yeah, so probably like eight months ago or so but yeah basically at that point I was still playing some poker as because I was just kind of starting out with the poker with presence coaching stuff and the book had just come out and within a few months of that I pretty much had no time to play poker anymore and so now it's just like seeing clients all day talking about my business with people writing things on Twitter, writing emails, <laughs> letting people know that I exist so that more people can come pay me to do my thing and help them, you know, have better lives and better experiences. And, and so that's kind of what my life looks like these days. I feel the having no time to actually mm. play poker thing because I 
I actually would like to play poker mm. every week, but most people are just not aware of how much energy it takes to run a business and, and kind of do what we do. Do you have any aspirations of, you know, playing poker at least recreationally or for fun in the near future? Yeah, definitely. Um, I'll, I'll say that most people have no idea what goes into it, but everybody has suggestions for you about how you should do it, which I find very amusing, which is that that phrase that I'm, I always recoil when I hear is, hey, you know what you should do? You know what you should do? And, and I always know it's going to be followed by something that I'm almost likely definitely not going to do. But uh, thank you very much for the suggestion. <laughs> yeah. Person who does not own a business. <laughs> <laughs> Basically, what you're doing is, if you could visualize it, is you're stumbling across a person who's being buried by just debris and you're saying, hey, here's another little thing that you should do. And then you chunk another piece of debris on them. Mm. Basically, you're curb stomping them. Um, mm. <laughs> and it's not yeah. – uh, yeah, it's it, it's just everything is overwhelming. And yeah, there are lots of great ideas and lots of things yeah. to do. But it's like just finding the time to execute them is – I find to be very difficult being a, you know, effectively a solo entrepreneur mm. at this point. Yeah, ideas are dime a dozen, man, and everybody's got them. So they're really kind of useless to me at this point. It's all about what can I actually do with my day. But to answer the question, I was thinking about it recently and I actually want to, I still want to win a bracelet at some point in my life, which is not too unreasonable given my current income trajectory and my ability to play mixed games. So I'll be able to play in a bunch of like 80 person World Series of Poker Tournaments where I could just run hot and ideally win a bracelet someday there. I also just was briefly entertaining the notion of just when this whole COVID thing dies down, of just flying out to Vegas occasionally to just play like a 5K or 10K tournament and have a really good time. So that's kind of how I see my rec poker future shaping up and not a lot of studying the game or anything like that, but just kind of showing up and showing up as I am and seeing how it goes and having a good time. Yeah. I mean, that's what poker is about, right? Like it's having fun. It's playing a game that you enjoy. It doesn't have to be a grind and something that like you're obligated to do on a day to day basis. I think that that actually sucks a lot of the joy out of playing mm -hmm. poker uh, in the first place. And, you know, I guess if we could remember the human being that we were when we were entering the poker space, it was filled with excitement and, I get to play poker every day instead of I have to play poker every day. And there's a very big difference between those two ways that you approach playing cards. Yeah, I think that pros could probably get a little bit more of that into their day-to-day -day stuff. And then when the rec player starts to feel like, oh, I have to play, that, that's going to be just a total disaster. So yeah, I think that you make a really good point there. And I totally agree. Good, good, good to agree with you on things, Jason. <laughs> yeah, um, poker should be fun. <laughs> it's not. A, I guess that's not exactly a, a hot take or a bold take <laughs> that poker should be fun, but it should be. So to start out this round two, I wanted to ask you, what was your biggest influence in becoming a poker professional? The what and the who, specifically, if there is a who. The the main influence was the lack of wanting to find a regular work, <laughs> which, which I imagine that many people who ended up playing poker full-time could relate to. So 
like I wish there was yeah somebody who just sat me down when I was 21 and was like son <laughs> this is how you're gonna do it you've got talent you could make it if you do this this and this but no that didn't that wasn't a thing it was really just like I won a tournament when I was 21 I had six figures in the bank when I graduated college I did not need to find work during that time of not finding work I was still playing poker after a couple of years of that I had more money and then I started taking it seriously and it was a realization of like well I guess I'm just having a pretty nice life and a pretty nice run doing this so I'll keep going and then and that's kind of how it happened back in those days you know the early 2000s you could just kind of slide into it as a profession these days it's um, not an option at all you have to really be all the way in with every aspect of the game absolutely and related to that you know who when you were watching poker, who did you aspire to be? Like, who is the person that was like, man, that guy really resonates with me or girl um, and kind of influenced you to get into poker? Definitely Ivy. It was like for people in our, our age bracket, we're about the same age, 37. Uh, there's just nobody else to compare to other than just Ivy. Watching him on TV was amazing every time. And then just seeing him do stuff that nobody else was doing. And then the demeanor was just spectacular. And I could, I could really see myself doing cool stuff like that at some point in the future. Ivy was absolutely terrifying. <laughs> like he was just, you know, Negranu was a big name and doing a lot of work on the tournament circuit, especially early on. And maybe one of the biggest names in poker in, in the golden age but Ivy is just like a stone cold killer. Just you cannot ruffle his feathers. You cannot, he, he doesn't get emotionally compromised and he just plays above the rim with each decision that he makes. Like it, he, he, for sure, like who else is there besides Ivy as it relates to, you know, probably the greatest poker player of all time. Uh, you know, I ran the tournament a year ago or so and like nobody even came close to beating Ivy. He just head and shoulders above the rest. Yeah. And and he had this effect on people where even if he wasn't playing his best, because I'm sure there were plenty of times where he wasn't playing completely above the rim, but it always felt like he was, or it felt like he was going to at any moment as soon as somebody was in a hand with him. And and so you could tell that he was creating this effect where people were just instantly in a place of fear as soon as he got into the pot with them and they wouldn't relax until he had folded. Right. And and so starting from that point where he's just completely relaxed and chill and doing his thing and his eyes are darting around and and he's shuffling his chips with that perfect rhythm and and the other person's just like completely freaking out on the inside because they're going up against ivy and and so just watching that play out on tv was a big inspiration for me for what's possible absolutely he's he's the lion in the den that you're going to do battle against and just having that aura of invincibility creates just a, a natural edge against all the folks that he battles with on a regular basis that yeah i'm with you ivy's ivy's the man what, what else can you say yeah and and i actually wrote a tweet about this a few weeks ago now like the guy who does that to people is garrett right he goes on live with the bike and he's just sitting there and he's got his like giant mountain of chips and and every time he does any kind of movement whoever's in the hand with him just starts freaking out if he like stands up a little to like look at their chips to like see their stack or he asks them a little question there they just start like freaking out and they can't really stay composed and so it's that kind of same level of 
not intimidation, but just like their physical, something about the way that they're composing themselves, holding themselves up in that arena really just freaks people out and people can't match that intensity, that energy. And so they end up hunting. And I mean, what, what happens is it's kind of like you're playing hide and go seek as a kid and you're hiding in the dark. And like these guys, you're just afraid to make a sound. You're afraid to give anything away. You mm-hmm. feel like they see everything that they're not going to miss any variables. So like every movement matters, every sizing matters, every line matters. When I think the reality is it probably doesn't as much as we feel psychologically that it does, but just getting people in that space of like, they're very tight and everything that they do matters. And like, if we're bluffing, they're going to catch me because they're going to see these mannerisms. They're going to put the puzzle together. And uh, yeah, that's a, all, all players that you encounter at the poker table that are like that, it's going to be a rough night. They're going to make your world pretty miserable. Yeah, and what happens in the in the process of that is that you lose track of you, right? You lose your ability to be happy with who you are and to play the game the way that you want to play. And so you end up doing all this weird stuff trying to counter what you think they're doing when you really have no idea what they're doing. And in the process of that, you completely lose touch with the way that you've learned how to play the game the way that you've gotten the success to where you could be at this table with that player right now. And that is really the biggest loss that happens in that process. Absolutely. And it's by design. When you start trying to change the way that you do stuff to counter somebody else, effectively, that's what most people do against them. And so when you choose these strategies specifically against them, they've encountered these deviations many, 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 many times they're prepared. They know exactly how to react. Like you're not making them uncomfortable at that point. You're kind of playing directly into their strengths, which is not what you want to do against those guys. Yeah. I remember when moneymaker won the world series, he said after day two, he was really pissed at himself for like making a play that he didn't like because he was trying to adjust to somebody, maybe Johnny Chan or something like that. And And he just said to himself, you know what, if I'm going to go out, I'm going to do this my way. And I'm just going to play my style, even though it's not as good as these guys I'm going up against. It's the best that I can do. And and I'll actually feel like I can walk away with no regrets if I do this my way. And we know how that turned out. He ran really good and did some cool stuff, outplayed some people who had a lot more ability, technical knowledge, experience than him. Because And the only way that he had the chance to do that was doing it on his own terms. Absolutely. And I think like the main takeaway is there's nobody who's omniscient and omnipotent at the poker table. So a lot of the things you think they're going to understand exactly what you're doing, they're, they're likely not. So just do what you do, right? And go from there. So here, here's a, a question. Tell me the story of your favorite poker session ever. Like set the scene, tell me the characters and why it's your po- favorite session ever. Is this going to be one where I'm like bragging about how much I won or how well I played or just like had a really good time? <laughs> what, are, what are we looking for here? Favorite is subjective to Favorite you. Subjective. You you personally, you, you may not even win this session. Mm. Just a time that was very, very fun, that, mm. that's memorable and that, that you considered to be one of your highlight sessions. Yeah, so I'd say there's like multiple times where I have – one of my good friends, we would go up and play uh, Limit Hold'em up here in Colorado. And there's quite a few like stodgy regs who never talk and 
never really contribute to the atmosphere. And and we have a my friend and I have a fun dynamic where we talk lots of trash to each other and order some drinks and and have a good time and and start doing stuff. And you know, we're the we're the biggest winners in the game. But by the end of like a few hours of that, the whole table's kind of having a really nice time. Everybody's laughing. The rec players are having a much nicer time. The iPads are all uh, gone from the table. And yeah, there's been, so there's been like a handful of times where it just really felt like it was just like a magical experience of people actually talking to each other and having a good time and not caring so much about who's winning and losing and giving lots and lots of action uh, in a way that just made the game really fun. So anytime I feel like where I've contributed to people having more fun and thinking less about the actual money and, and the poker and more just about like having fun and getting to know each other as human beings would go into that category of my favorites. Yeah, it's funny that you say that because it. I remember instantly a few sessions that I played in just a local tournament at a driving range, which was just a place that I would go sometimes to kind of blow off steam after playing online. And it was a $20 tournament and there were maybe three or four tables. And I went there with a a friend of mine who is also a pro and we just made like a hundred dollar last longer bet amongst ourselves. And then we also put bounties on each other and told everybody like in the tournament that there was bounties. Like, and it was like an absurd amount too. It was like a $50 bounty or a hundred dollar bounty in this $20 tournament. And like the atmosphere just changed. Like it, like everybody started having more fun, like, because they had this free roll, they were coming after me and him in this silly little $20 tournament. And it went from like this thing. That's just, I don't really care whether I win or lose or whatever to like a fun activity that is memorable to me it, it that those small tournaments I, i've played in many of them and i have no recollection of any of them except for the ones where we made those bets put the bounties and everybody was having a good time mm-hmm. yeah actually one in particular when you were saying that uh comes to mind where i got the whole table to tip for somebody else who won a pot so every time somebody else won a pot you had to tip for them five bucks to the dealer and uh that was a good time so i I started it by like getting the player who was playing literally every hand and i was like every time you win a pot i'll give the dealer five bucks on your behalf and then so everybody picked a person eventually to tip for and uh, i got i definitely got screwed on that and but it was it it somehow made the game just amazing i don't know why something about that what was the dynamic what was the dynamic of the game after you made that little you know a little side bet or whatever you want to call it the pots just like doubled in size on average after <laughs> after we started doing this. So so I started tipping for this guy who's a rec player who I'd never seen before, but he was drinking and I wanted him to feel more comfortable. And then and then my friend was like, Oh, I got your I got your pots, and then so he starts tipping for him, and then somebody starts tipping for him. And then so by then the whole thing was like connected. And then I don't know why, it doesn't really matter, but for some reason it changed the energy. And so everybody just loosened up and the pots doubled in size and everybody's having a good time and a lot of fun. It's interesting that, that you say that. And some of my favorite tables that used to be spread on ultimate bet that just disappeared after black Friday were the do seven off tables where you would win two big blinds from everybody. If you take down a pot with do seven off and like every time I've done that live, every time I've played it online, The pots are bigger. It's just a more exciting and fun format. And I wish that online poker platforms specifically, even live poker, would spread some of these these games just to mix it up and make it more fun and introduce 
different variables from the ones that like you deal with day in and day out. Innovation is not the poker industry's best feature. <laughs> well, over the last 15 years, for sure. But, yeah. you know, pre, pre that, there was tons yeah. of innovation. Like mm-hmm. it was, things were changing all the time and, and new concepts and new formats. And it, it's really sad to me that like, we've just kind of gone backwards, you know, f- since Black Friday. Yeah, I think that when the money starts getting big, then you start bringing in the suits who want to just figure out how to make the most of it with the least amount of effort and efficiency becomes very important. People who don't, who have never played poker start running poker businesses and you lose touch with what the player, what the players would really want and enjoy. Yeah. It's, it's sad, but it just means that there's room for future innovations on future platforms to do a much better job and capture a significant amount of market share whenever it goes down. Yeah. It goes in waves. It'll come back. So the opposite of that question, a least favorite poker session, Mm. the story of your least favorite. Any session where I didn't really want to play and then I convinced myself to do it anyways my hourly what is that in- what, what does that internal dialogue sound like when you're convincing yourself to play well it's like oh i haven't played in like a few days i should probably just put in some hours oh my volume's been low this week i should probably put in some hours oh i've got nothing else going on anyways might as well just play probably have the equivalent win rate of like the worst player in the pool when when i ended up doing that so i regret all of those I could take them all back. I would have a lot more money. What's the feeling? What's the internal feeling of like not wanting to play? It's just like dread. Mm. You don't want to go there. What does it feel like? Well, for me, it's like a lack of excitement of, cause usually I'm, I'm pretty excited when I, when I get to play poker. Cause I, I love the game. It's never been a chore for me. It's not, ne- I've never seen it as like a job. Uh, in the past and so there's always this like uplifting energy of excitement it's like oh i'm gonna play this is gonna be fun i'm gonna do stuff i'm gonna try to wreck people and and so it's really just the absence of that and it's just this kind of like foggy feeling in my mind with no real energy behind it and and almost an obligation feeling like when when you have to do something that you've agreed to do that you don't really want to do out in life it's kind of that same feeling inside but with poker which for me was always rare but when i overrode that and went anyway it was always such a disaster the worst times in my poker career have been when i assume my win rate and i start saying okay i need to play three thousand hands a day and then I like quantify it out as to how much money that's worth and basically make a spreadsheet. And it's like, I need to hit these metrics on a daily basis. Anytime I've ever done that, what I find myself doing is just showing up and expecting to win. It's like, I just sit down at the table. It's like, okay, I play 3000 hands. I should win X amount. And I always end up getting smashed. I always end up showing up with low energy, no enthusiasm about playing my session. It's it like, I've tried it multiple times, not in like the last probably 10 years or so, but like coming up, it was like, yeah, I'm going to create these metrics. I'm going to set these goals. I'm going to show up. I'm going to make X amount of money because I'm showing up. And I just realized like, I'm not showing up with an edge. I'm not showing up with excitement to make good decisions and to play really well. I'm kind of just showing up to, to show up and then 
get paid at the end of the day, which in poker, you need the edge. You need to show up excited. You need to show up ready to make just great decision after great decision after great decision. And when you don't and your energy levels are low, you're just going to play like shit and the results will reflect that. Yeah. Losing money is already a bad enough experience. Losing money when you're, when you didn't want to be there in the first place is like 10 times worse. It just like multiplies the pain by like so much. And, and it really just leaves this horrible taste in your mouth that takes a little while to get rid of and start building up that excitement again. So in my experience, it was like, if I ever, if if I did that and I played when I didn't want to play and I got smashed, then it would be even longer again before I would actually feel that excitement. Whereas if I just let it pass, I'd probably be excited again, like tomorrow to go play because it's just how it is. Yeah. Listen to yourself. Listen to your body. Listen to your feelings. Jason, tell me about presence. Why did you think presence was the missing weapon in the arsenal of poker players? So everyone's a mindset champion when they're running great, right? But when you're getting crushed day after day and you haven't booked a win in forever and the confidence is just gone and you're trying to do this thing that you read about in a book or someone told you about being logical and being happy that the money went in good when all you really want to do is cry and hit something at the same time. Like, how are you supposed to be logical in that moment? But that's the only moment when you really need it. What you need in that moment isn't mindset. You've already read all the mindset books and you already know what you're supposed to think and what you're supposed to do. What you actually need in that moment is presence. Presence is the ability to connect the dots between who you want to be and how you can actually be that person when you need it most. So let's cut to the chase, right? Like, how do you do it? How do you stay more present when you're at the poker table? Well, you get there by first deciding that you want more, right? That you want to grow your intuition, that you want to create more flow in your life, and that you want to reach your full potential as a player and as a person. And once you get there, you can start trying out some of the exercises and practices that I've put together. If it feels good, if you're enjoying it, you can keep going. Right? And if you keep going long enough, eventually you'll find that you're just playing at really high levels, that you feel good with low stress, and you're enjoying your experience a lot more, not just at the table, but away from it as well. I personally would love to have as much presence as I possibly can in my day-to-day life. And if you, the listener, right now wants to add some presence to your game, visit pokerwithpresence.com. Join Jason Sue's email newsletter and then schedule a free consult with the master of presence himself. One more time, that's pokerwithpresence.com. So when you think of pots that you've won, doesn't have to be the biggest pot, but maybe the most fun hand. What's the first hand that comes to mind? The most fun hand was probably in a 5K tournament back when the World Series of Poker Circuit was running 5K main events. I think this is in like 2010. And I'd been playing nothing but heads up cash online for years at this point. And so was much more technically advanced, especially in deep stacked heads up situations than most people I was going to be up against in that field and ran into this spot where I opened ace 10 in middle position, pretty deep stacks early in the tournament, maybe like level four or five, and got flattered on the button by this kind of youngish kid who looked like he played two five and satellited in. 
and called by the big blind. <laughs> How does a kid look like that? Like, what, just, what, what does that know, kid look like? When you've been around poker for a long time, you can just look at people and be pretty accurate about your assessment of them after like an hour of sitting at the table with them. Right. You just have like your 10,000 hours of looking at people and then getting to know who they are. And then after a while, you can just kind of like make certain assumptions. I could have been completely wrong, but that was the read. Right. After a few hours, it's like sure. this kid probably plays two five and satellite it in. And uh, so, yeah, he calls the button. Big blind calls. The flop was like ace king seven rainbow. Uh, we checked it through. This hand would play out a lot differently in morning, <laughs> by the way. Um, uh-huh. And the turn was uh, like a six, and it checked to me, and I bet like half pot. And the button called, and the big blind folded, and the river was an offsuit king. So ace, and, king, six, seven, king? Yeah. Okay. And I bet like a third pot. And he raised me like 4X or something like that. And I think his raise was to like 12,000, but we were like 60K deep. And I was just like, oh yeah, like I can just make him fold now because you got we're playing live poker. It's 2010. He might think I checked pocket aces on the flop. And so I just like kind of tried to pretend like I was Phil Ivey and... <laughs> I kind of looked at a stack for a while and shuffled my chips for like a minute. And then, and I was like, about how much do you have? And he's like, you know, another like 40, 45. And then I was like, yeah, I'm all in. And then he just kind of sighed and folded within like 10 seconds. And so I was pretty proud of myself at that point because it was the culmination of a lot of like stuff I had been working through around learning about capped ranges and who can represent what from playing, you know, hundreds of thousands of hands of heads up each year and got to execute it in a live arena where nobody was going to have any idea what I was up to. And yeah, it was just, it just felt really nice. So pretty proud of that one. Yeah. It's a nice little bet three bet on the river. We got the ace Kings. We got the aces full. You don't. So Go fuck yourself. Yeah, let's go. <laughs> <laughs> let's see if you can man up and call me with king queen here. Yes, yes. And then and then you gotta and then when he folds, of course you gotta give him the little like fake disappointment. You know? Yeah. One for Sh- shake your head. Uh nice hand. Nice hand. All right. Um <laughs> <laughs> when you think of pots lost, what's the first hand that comes to mind? Yeah, this one's easy. First time playing 2550 at the Bellagio in 2006 or 2007, sometime around that time. I think it was All-Star Weekend of 2007. So Bellagio's going crazy. First shot at 2550. I had turned my, I think I bought him for like 4K or 5K and I had run it up to like 12, feeling good. Right? I was like, oh, I'm going to play this forever. And and then two drunk guys walk in. Every story starts with like two drunk guys come to the table, right? And and one of them was Al Crux. I remember him because he like final table the main. I'm, I'm guessing you probably played with him at some point over the years. I don't recognize the name. Okay. I, I might recognize the face. Okay, super fun, outgoing guy and his buddy. And they've been at the club next to the poker room at Bellagio and they stroll in. And, and so the game picks up quickly. And then... Uh, so the buddy plays a hand where I open ace king to like 
200, 250. I don't remember. And he calls the big blind. The flop is ace, seven, three, rainbow. I bet like 400. He check raises me to about 1K. Call. The turn is whatever, like a 10 or something like that. And he just shoves like 3K, 4K, something. I snap call because he's been opening to 500 and then folding to three beds. <laughs> and and, uh, and he goes, you got anything? I was like, I got a pair. And, and, and he goes, all right. And he flips over a seven. And I was like, is that it? And he's like, yeah. And then the river's a queen. And then he flips over a queen. And I was just like, oh, my God, what is happening? And so that's definitely the first thing I always think of um, when I think about like impactful pots that I lost because it was like first time playing 2550 and then it was going really, really well. And then that happened. And then I uh, don't think I played too much longer after that. I was like pretty jolted from, from losing a 10, 11 K pot or whatever. What was the, the size pots that you had been playing up to that point? I had been playing mostly 1020 every time I went to Vegas. So I, I played a lot of 1020 up to then. So I hadn't played like hardly, I don't think I'd ever played a 10K pot up to that point in my life. Yeah. Really? At 1020? Yeah. Yeah. Cause back then everyone was just buying for like a thousand, right? You know, it's 2006, 2007, 1020 games. The minimum buying 600, you had like so many people buying in for 600. And then like tons of people buying in for a thousand. Very few people were buying in for more than 2K. So you just didn't have that many like enormous pots at that time. Yeah. You, you, mentioned garrett earlier and in the 1020 game at commerce always garrett was very well known for buying in for 35k no matter what like he just buys in like he just has a 35k stack even when second place is like six or seven k just always 35k and over time there were more people that started buying in for like 10 and 15 and 20k and then all of a sudden at the 1020 no limit you know you're seeing some 20 k pots and some 25 k pots sometimes so yeah, yeah the, the depth certainly has a big impact as to the size of the pots you you regularly play yeah i got a, i got a good commerce story on that note because I, i'm sure you'll get a kick out of this since you played there a lot so in that same time frame you know i'm still in college and, and just one of my first trips to commerce maybe my second or third trip i'm playing 1020 at the commerce and Kenny Tran sits down next to me, right? And he writes one of those fat checks to like get from all the chips he wants to get from the from the bank. And they bring him, you know, all his chips, probably like 20, 25K total in chips, which is absurd because nobody had more than 2K on the table. And he sits down and, and he's got one of those like pink 5K chips, right? And I'd never seen him before. I had seen like the green one, but the pink one was kind of, he stacked it underneath like another green one or something, so I couldn't see the denomination on the chip. What's the green one? That's the green one is one k. The green one. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's yeah. like a a light green. Yeah, almost like, like a light aqu- green aqua. Yeah. Type. Yeah, yeah. 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 So the hot pink one, five k, and I'd never seen one before. And I was just like, and I was sitting next to him, and it's like, hey, how much is that pink chip? And he looks at me, and he and he sneers, and he goes, "What the fuck do you care with this tiny little stack you got?" <laughs> Uh, <laughs> oh man that is great um unfortunately i didn't get to play with kenny because he was banned from commerce for a no- number of years i, okay. I think he, he eventually got unbanned okay. um, 
around the same time that I myself got unbanned from commerce, but that's mm. a, that's a different story for a different day. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, so that, I, I did hilarious. not go to commerce very much <laughs> because of multiple experiences like that. So I was more of a Vegas guy all through those years. That's a hilarious story though. Could you tell the listener a poker lesson that you've learned from a dark teacher? A bad experience could be a person, mm. could be just an experience. Mm. Let's go with ego, right? So when I was 21, I binked a 1K tournament for six figures and just thought I was the man. And for the next, like, probably two years, I did not get any better at poker because I just had way more money than everyone I knew and just thought I was the man. And I remember like maybe six months after I won that tournament, I was at a friend's place. We were having dinner and he was like, Hey, uh, there's this new site called card runners. We should, we could like split a subscription, which is funny. Talk about like splitting a subscription. Um, but he's like, yeah, we could split a subscription and, and watch these videos about like how to get better. And I was like, why would you want to do that? Right. Why would you want to listen to anybody else? Like show you how to get better. And, and so, so that definitely happened. And you know, that attitude, there was another episode where, I went to another friend's house and he was getting coaching from Vanessa, Vanessa Selbst. Um, and then when he got off the call, I was like, who is that? And he was like, Oh, it's my coach. And I was like, you have a coach. <laughs> what is wrong with you? You, this game is so easy. You can just figure it out on your own. So that was like my mindset for basically two years until one day I was playing with that exact same friend who had been getting coaching with Vanessa. And I realized he was like five times better than me. And then I was like, Hey, can I have her um, email address? <laughs> <laughs> Um, but it was like two years lost during the golden, golden era of poker. Uh, definitely a million dollar mistake, at least. But if we're talking about money compounding, maybe 10 million. Yeah. And I remember specifically, she was a coach on Deuces Cracked and she, it was, she was $600 a session. And from what you're saying, 1000% worth every penny of those $600 per session. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, when my friend was doing it, it was like 200. And then by the time I started, it was like 350. And then quickly after that, it was 600. Yeah, it's, it's yeah. supply and demand. <laughs> it's just like, it doesn't matter how much because there's so much money to be made and you need to get better and need, you need somebody to help you how to get better in three weeks instead of three years so that you can get the money now that's not going to exist in three years, right? So these are all lessons that many of us had to learn as young people with bankrolls and large egos. Yeah. And to just talk about my arrogance and my ego at that age, like Vanessa was a good friend of mine. And mm. so I could have went and hung out with her and been totally immersed in poker and just discussed poker strategy all day long had I made some effort. And yet I just kind of stuck with myself and was like, ah, I know what to do. I know the decisions. Like these guys are really good, but like whatever. Um, yeah, you're, when you're 22 years old, you're basically you need a mentor in place to tell you do this thing, and then you also need to be able to do it right. You need to like mm -hmm. let that ego go to execute because we're really good at holding ourselves back and thinking we know a lot more than we actually do. The problem with being 22 is that even if you do have a mentor, as soon as you disagree with them, you're just going to tell them to fuck off and go do your own thing <laughs> anyways. So so I, there's just like a growing up phase that kind of needs to happen. And I was thinking about this, about how 
insane it was that like the poker boom happened at that time. And then there was just like this large pool of 22 to 25 year old people, mostly guys who just had like way more money than they ever would have had in any other scenario. And just thought that they were so great when really they were just in the right place at the right time with, you know, moderate to above intelligence and work ethic and, and attributed it all to just like their greatness. Absolutely. Like that's the biggest. So I used to believe fundamentally, and this is, you'll probably laugh that I was special. Like (laughs) I was, I had a special talent for poker. I was especially gifted Mm -hmm. and it wasn't a thing that was transferable Mm -hmm. and that like, it was just within me. I I didn't think that I could like teach or coach. Mm -hmm. I would see people struggle and it's like, I don't know, like, they just struggle. They're not naturally good at poker, like, like me. Right. And that was such a horrible, horrible, horrible way to feel because the reality is like, I wasn't special. It is a learnable thing. It is a teachable and coachable thing. And had I bought into that paradigm, it would have been so obvious to get coaching from Mm -hmm. a superior player because I would have realized, Oh, they can transfer me their wisdom and the things that they've learned on their own. And just, yeah, the, the value of that compounded over time is just immeasurable. Yeah. I only laugh because I feel the pain inside myself. <laughs> I'm not laughing at you. I'm laughing at myself. You're, the pain is real when I think about all that, all that stuff. Yeah, definitely, definitely dark teacher. And mm-hmm. what can you do? You know, you live, you make through, you share yeah. the lessons with the, you know, with the listener who's on the line here and just try to do the best that you can in the present. Yeah. That's life. You grow. And then when the next one comes around, you have a little bit more of a grasp on how to deal with it, but maybe not quite yet. And then that one will pass. And then the next one will come. Life is full of opportunities. People who are pining for the poker boom or the next poker boom don't understand that like it's already here or and there's another one coming, but it's just not going to look like the last one. Right. And so it's not about how do we get another poker boom? It's about how do I personally position myself to be the person who's ready to grow into whatever the next big thing is. It might be poker, probably not, but it it could be. But either way, whatever it is, can you be the person who's ready to kind of get rid of all that stuff, that ego, that all that stuff from when you're younger that held you back from really reaching your full potential? And I'm going to offer a hot take here that you or the listener may disagree with. But I'm going to say flat out, anybody that can't make it in poker today, if you would have been playing 15 years ago, you couldn't have made it then either. Mm. And it's delusional to say like, oh, the games were easy. We were just printing money. Everybody was really bad. Mm. But like it was still a struggle back then. Like you were still having to learn. You were still having – like you just had much less information to work with. Yeah, the games were softer, but that's just the evolution of the game. If you're not willing to bear down and learn what it takes today to be able to beat the game, I don't think you could have beaten it 15 years ago either, or you couldn't have made a career out of it. I'll put it that way. That's a that's a pretty nice hot take. I'm uh, at first I was resisting when you were when you're saying that, but as you kept going, I was like, yes, yeah, pretty reasonable because we all sucked back then relative to now. So it's not like. Everybody's like, oh, I wish I could take the knowledge I have now. And, and tra- it's not how it works, dude, right? Like you you get the edge by outworking your opponents. You get the edge by being more, you know, engaged with the game, more excited about what you're up to than your opponents. 
And so, yeah, that, that probably is true that if you can't make it now, um, you couldn't have made it then. What I will say is that if you can make it now versus can making it back then, the money was a lot nicer back then for, for the same level of work and edge over the field. That I can get on board with. You, you could play higher stakes. There were yeah. just so many people in the mm. poker world. Like just, it, it was just a flood of human beings entering the poker space, ready to throw down and gamble. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you consider a weakness that you've had related to your poker game? Uh, maybe strategically, and then what steps did you take to regularly overcome that weakness? Strategically, I probably, especially in in big bet formats just loved bluffing a little too much uh, over the years. Like as, especially as I was coming up, I I definitely just loved bluffing. (laughs) (laughs) What's funny is like bluffing is really good. It's just, you loved bluffing in the wrong spots. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It was just like, you know, when you're, 21 and you've just watched rounders and you've got that quote you're like i'm just gonna outplay this guy <laughs> his hand and you and rounders just is like your only reference for what is like good for poker and you know mistakes were made <laughs> what can i say but uh yeah. that was that was more of the problem technically in the early years that got corrected you know pretty quickly but I would say in the later years, it was more about just not taking enough shots at bigger games. After I hit probably like 32 years old, I kind of shied away from taking more shots in in bigger games just because when, when I got older, the, the idea of like going back down to nothing was just unacceptable. So that definitely was where I capped my EV was by just passing on on bigger games, which I don't think there's necessarily anything wrong with. But if we we're looking for a leak in terms of how I was running my day-to-day operations, that would be it. Did you take any steps to overcome that, you know, your unwillingness to take shots and play bigger games? Uh, I would say the the best step I took was to create a six figure income that had nothing to do with poker. And now, <laughs> now I'm going to be like completely willing to play and, in like those bigger games because I'm just pretty chill about money now and, and it's not a big deal. So as far as like when I was playing, yeah, I, I I would force myself to play bigger sometimes, especially like during the summer and during the world series, I'd force myself to play bigger, but I can't say that I was like particularly enjoying the large, large fluctuations of swings that were coming with it. Right. Like if you move from like, I'm a mixed game player. So if you move from, 100 200 200 400 you're not doubling your variance you're like 8xing your variance in terms of swings per hour downswings and yeah i i can't say that i particularly enjoyed that even though i got myself to do it yeah it's it's tough like moving up stakes is always tough dealing with numbers that are much bigger than what you're comfortable and used to. Uh, I do want to just go back about the bluffing thing because it's, it's, I can't tell you how many poker sessions I ended with me kind of walking away from the table in a daze, just like wondering to myself, like, why did I do that again? Like, 
why did I do that? Why do I keep doing this? Why do I keep just like punting in these massive, massive spots? Because it happened many times where it was like, I, I guess it gives it a little bit of insight into my construction as a poker player. It's like, I don't think this bluff is going to work. I don't think I should do this. Fuck it. I'm all in. <laughs> like that's, that's sort of how the mindset is like, I don't think I should do this. I don't feel good about it. But then I put all the money in anyway, which is like just my nature, I guess, is to over bluff in those types of spots. But like it took a long time and a lot of pain for me to kind of be – I used to refer to it as like trying to fit a square peg into a round hole. Um, I'd be like, Brad, you can't do this anymore. Why are you trying to – like why are you trying to do this? Why, why does this keep happening over and over and over again? And eventually I made peace with it and it stopped happening as often as it was. But yeah, that was a major – major thing that i dealt with early on in my career you were you were chasing poker greatness man <laughs> and then that's how you thought you get it is by doing cool stuff well your experience playing big bet games was a lot different than mine early on in like tunica and the places that i played like there were no mm. caps on the games so it was like two five no cap and it was when you could just have a wad of hundreds and just stick it in your stack and like, mm-hmm. oh, this is my stack, right? So it's like, ah, oh, somebody takes out a 5K uh, roll of hundreds. I put my 5K roll of hundreds on the table and it's like, oh, I've got a $10,000 bankroll and I've got 9,000 of it in play and I'm covered by four people at the mm-hmm. table. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> naturally I would get in spots where it's like, I need to bluff and I need to bluff big because literally 30% of my bankroll is in this pot. Like (laughs) (laughs) now I need to put 60% in so that I can get the other 30% back. Um, Yeah. It's a funny little funny, just funny playing super deep as a very immature poker player. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I went out to Tunica a couple of times before I was 21 with my college roommates ID. He was Asian. So you know, they're just like, oh, Asian on the thing. Yeah. You all Enjoy. look the same. Just have a, go, have a good go time. Through. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Have a good time. And, and yeah, that definitely was like a shock when the guys would be whipping out the 10K and putting it on the table in like a 5 10 game. And yeah, that the, the gambling in the South, they just do it different in the South. Yeah. They don't give a shit. Like <laughs> you put 10K on the table back then, like if they got aces and you crack their aces, you're winning a 20k pot like you are go you were getting every single penny of their stack because that's just how it was it was like bet raise three bet massive four bet big all the money's in on the flop um uh, those were some good times i i, I wish i would have been a better poker player <laughs> back then <laughs> don't, we all? don't we all um what's a purchase you've made in the last year that's been well, this is a little tricky question for you since you haven't been playing a ton of poker over mm-hmm. the past year, but what's what's a purchase you made in your poker career that was ultra impactful to your game? Buying coaching from A.E. Jones to learn how to play Heads Up No Limit in 2008 when he was like king of the hill. And yeah, that just allowed me to start playing Heads Up, which was a great period of my life. What's, what do you think the ROI of that, that coaching was? Close to infinite, honestly, <laughs> because I was, I was a six max player and I was like doing okay, but I was like, heads up looks fun. Let me give it a shot. And, and by then I learned my lesson. I was like, all right, who's, who's the best, right? Who's the best. And 
like, okay, I messaged him, let me do some sessions and, and yeah, close to infinite ROI just because heads up, the win rates are massive and you, and you learn so much about poker when you're in every hand, right? When you're in every hand and you, and it's like not correct to fold ever on the button, then you learn so much about how to play the game, how to think about the game. And so even though, you know, I stopped playing heads up by within like four years later, I wasn't playing anymore because of black Friday was whatever. Like that was that thought process, that mindset of like how to think about the game in terms of what happens when everybody's got wide ranges. How do you adjust? How do you put yourself in the mind of your opponent? How do you get into their perspective so that you can adjust your perspective to beat them out of as much as possible. That to me is like the pure essence of poker. And you can't learn that as quickly when you're playing six handed or nine handed, you can really only learn that deeply and have that wired into your process deeply when you're learning how to play heads up. Yeah. And just being immersed in uncomfortable situations, like out of position in position where you don't have anything the majority of the time. And yet you're continuing in some fashion is uncomfortable. And when you live in that uncomfortable world, you just are much better playing three bet pots out of position at, at six max. Just you feel mm-hmm. more comfortable in the spots where you used to feel uncomfortable. Yeah. Poker. If you want to reach the highest levels of poker, you can, you just need to learn how to get comfortable in the unknown, comfortable navigating through spots you've never seen before that you'll never see again. This is just happening this one time in this exact moment with the exact history that it's built up through. And, and so nothing teaches you that like having queen seven off in a four bet <laughs> pot. You know? Yep, exactly. When, when you want to know that everything's going to be okay before you do something, you are already limiting how well you're going to be able to perform when you're doing it. Right. So this applies to not just poker, but in life as well. Like I had a client, I was talking about this yesterday and he was like, how do I know when I'm emotionally ready to move up to to 510? And I was like, you don't, you just do it. And then you see what happens and then you learn from it and you grow. You can talk about it. We can talk about it for hours and hours, but you're going to learn more in that first session of the higher stake you play about who you are, where you're at, where your deficiencies are than we could ever discover talking about. So this kind of need to know that it's going to be okay before you jump into something, you know, we can be talking about moving up mistakes or even dating, marriage, whatever, becoming a parent. These are all things where it's like people hold themselves back from things that they intuitively feel that they know that they want because they're scared that there's a bad outcome that might happen. And yeah, it might happen, but you can't let that keep you from doing what feels good to you, doing what you know that you really want to do. Yeah. You can't predict through logic, how you're going to feel emotionally when you mm-hmm. get in a, a situation. You just can't do it. You can't remove that uncertainty. You just have to feel it and, you know, go through it. And then you get that. That's the data, right? Those emotional data points. That's how you know whether or not you're ready. Yeah. You just got to jump in the pool when you feel excited to jump in the pool. I remember I was reading one of Doyle Brunson's books. I think it was called Poker Wisdom of Champion. It was really good. And he, was that you know, the, he made, was that the one where it was like uh, he told the story about the guy like ripping his shirt, um, ripping his shirt, and uh, there was some story that he. Uh, anyway, I, I go one. He had like a little book of short stories that 
I always thought were really, really good that nobody ever mm-hmm. talked about. Yeah, that might be Super it. System. Yeah, yeah. I loved that book. And and it's because he made all the same mistakes we did just like 40 years earlier, right? And so he's recounting, you know, every single one, one by one, and, and all the lessons that came with it that allowed him to get to where he got. And one of the lessons was that like, you know, back in the day, he was in some diner and some guy challenged him to heads up in a diner or something like that. And, and his, he and his friend were like sharing bankrolls. And so they're like, let's go. And his friend was like, let's do it. And Doyle was like, no, I don't want to do it. I, you know, I don't want to lose the role. And, and then his friend like cleaned the guy out for like a ton. And the lesson he said was that like, you know, if it feels like there's an edge now, I'm always willing to like risk a little to win a lot. I'm not going to risk the whole thing. I trust myself to step out the moment that I realize that this is not the right situation, but I'm going to find out just in case this is like the once in a lifetime situation, right? I'm willing to dip my toe in, see what it's like and keep feeling into it as I go. I'm not necessarily committing my whole bankroll to this game right here, but I'm going to make a little investment to see if I can turn it into something really huge. And I think that's a, a skill that, needs to be developed is this mentality of just because I dive in, it doesn't mean I'm all the way in and I'm going to sink with the ship. If things start to go poorly, no, I'm just going to like come back out and reflect on what I could learn and how I could get better. So the next time I jump in, I'm a little bit more prepared. Yeah. It's positioning yourself to make an asymmetrical risk Mm -hmm. where, you know, the upside is way higher than the downside, but you have to take the risk in the first place to figure out if the edge is actually there. Look, I totally get it. You feel like being a lone wolf in your poker journey has hamstrung your ability to realize your full potential. So I'm about to give you a golden opportunity to plug into a supportive tribe that will be the poker family you've always wished you had. How much money would you give for one hour of interactive group coaching led by myself, Coach Thomas, and occasionally past guests of the Chasing Poker Greatness podcast? For now, and this will absolutely change at some point in the near future, the price of admission to the Live Poker Power Hour is 100% free. All you've got to do to get your invite is head to ChasingPokerGreatness.com and hop on the VIP newsletter. No more excuses, no more procrastination. It's time to take action and put yourself in position to turn your poker dreams into reality. I hope to see that beautiful face of yours in just a couple of days. What's a poker related thing that people rave about that hasn't worked for you? Cold showers. <laughs> <laughs> Why didn't cold showers work? It's so cold, man. It's like, I don't know. I just can't, I just don't want to do it. It's so cold. I, I, I was doing it like for a while, like five years ago in summer. Then I was like, you know, I just don't like this. And, and so I'll suffer in other ways that don't involve me and just like wishing I was not here right now. So I believe that we don't really need to truly suffer to make great gains. Many people would disagree with me. They think that like pain is how you grow. Um, I think that pain comes along the way of the journey, but we don't need to go actively seeking it out and, and doing things that we truly genuinely hate in the name of getting to where we want to go. It's going to be a whole lot easier to build habits that feel good when you like them, right? And then small habits turn into large habits over time. And so I think that 
you just push yourself into stuff that really sucks as an experience for you, then you're not going to be doing it for long. And if you do it for a long time, you're going to kind of dislike yourself. Really expand on that. Why, why, why dislike yourself if you keep doing it? Uh, this thing that you kind of have this belief that it's making you stronger, that mm-hmm. it's something that like all the cool kids do. If you, if you grow to like it, that's one thing. But if you never like it and you just like keep making yourself do things that you don't enjoy because there's a story in your head that it's what's necessary to become like the next version of yourself. Well, now you're just a person who's miserable all the time and nobody likes being around a miserable person, including yourself, right? And so now you're just a person who doesn't like a large chunk of your experience of life. And so my belief is that we should just do things that we love, right? And if you are not, if you're doing something that feels hard, but you can feel connection to the love of what's going to come from it, that's one thing. But with the cold showers, I literally couldn't. I was in there and I was like, this just sucks. Um, I don't even know if it's doing anything. So it's one thing if you can stay connected to the larger overall purpose of it and really tap into that as you're doing something you maybe dislike somewhat over time. That's how you can grow into something that you enjoy. I had that relationship with studying and used to like it, but eventually by the end, I liked it quite a lot because I could stay connected to why I was doing it. But if you can't stay connected to why you're doing something and you don't like it, this is going to be a disaster. Yeah. Like going to the gym for me, I don't love lifting weights for 45 minutes, but I do love how I gain mental clarity. I do love how I gain energy. I love how I feel after doing it. Uh, Cold showers, I'm actually with you. My (laughs) God, I hate cold showers. Like I've tried them multiple times myself. It is like, it it is torture for me. What I look forward to when I try cold showers is turning the cold shower off and wrapping myself in a towel to to warm back up. That's what Mm -hmm. I look forward to as it relates to the cold showers. Yeah, man. I don't get it. Um, well, I think Berkey would have a different opinion. He he loves all the cold immersion and self, a lot of mm-hmm. a lot of the self uh, finding your limits, right? Um, yeah. Berkey Berkey likes pain. I mean, he he connects to pain in a different way. Like he loves, he genuinely loves pain. So it's a different experience. That is very different than my entire life experience. <laughs> I. <laughs> I typically have not loved pain. I, I mm-hmm. yeah. um, and I feel like I'm in the, I'm in the majority there. Yeah. What What are some things that you wish you had said no to, more often? Hmm. Said no to more often. Oh, definitely. This has nothing to do with Coker directly, but just in terms of setting myself up in life. I definitely wish I had said no to a lot more like social gatherings in my early twenties that I just most definitely didn't want to go to um, because I'm, I'm pretty introverted. And so like, if I feel like being around people, that's one thing and I really enjoy myself, but if I don't, and then I force myself to go anyways, right. It's just, it's just a horrible experience. So, so like a lot of really awkward social gatherings where I just ended up in the corner eating all the snacks because I didn't know what else to do with myself. And I only knew like a couple people there out of like the whole room. And 
you know, it doesn't have a direct impact on like performance in poker, but again, you're setting yourself up, right? Are you creating pathways in your nervous system, in your wiring of like, I know who I am and what I want, and I'm willing to say no to the things that don't feel good to me. Or are you a person who lets yourself be influenced by outside factors, by other people who want your time when you don't want to give it by things that you think you're supposed to do, but you genuinely feel no excitement over, right? These things carry over into the performance arena. If you are a person who consistently does things that you genuinely don't want to do, you're going to start doing things you genuinely don't want to do when you're playing. You're going to punt. You're going to make these stupid plays and you're going to say, why did I do that? And it's because you've created this habit of just being somebody who does things and you don't listen to that little voice inside your head of like, hey, don't go to this thing. Don't make this bluff. It's the same voice, right? And you either learn how to listen to it or you don't. Man, I love that. And I'm with you. Like I, I'm an introverted human as well and do very, very well in like one-to-one settings with a friend who I share common interests with, right? Like that to me, like going to dinner with a friend I share common interests with, that's an amazing time. Going to dinner with 10 people that I barely know who are all sitting around having a discussion, that is like hell on earth for me. I don't know what to say. Like I, I just... I don't speak up. Like I, I just want to have those like one-to-one conversations. And yeah, it's a, uh, it's a thing that like just knowing yourself, what you love and then doing what you love, despite any sort of social pressure. I, I think that that, again, that's just a sign of, you know, maturity growth as a human being. Yeah. I feel like that was very much a thing in my twenties when I was figuring out who I was and, not wanting to get left behind socially and really feeling like, like you could be judged. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Like, oh, this guy never goes out. What's, what's wrong with him. Right. And, and also just like wanting to know that like I could function in society in some ways and, and getting curious about like, well, you know, am I ever going to get married? Am I ever going to find a partner? Cause it's single. And it's like, Oh, maybe if I go out, I'll meet somebody cool. But if, if, the other stuff genuinely outweighs that. Like, no, I, I really just hate parties where I don't know almost everybody there. So now I'll probably never go to another one for the rest of my life. Right. But back then it was like, well, maybe something good could happen. But at a certain point I went to enough to where I realized nothing good has ever happened at a single one of these things that I said yes to that I didn't want to. So I think I'm just going to stop. And if anybody judges me for that, they probably don't, they're probably not a true friend anyways. So now we can get rid of even more stuff. That's not working. I just started going for it at some point. I, I think like, you know, it's my wife. We go out with like her friends. And I, at some point, like, I, I think I just, I'm getting older, getting closer to like that old man phase of like, I don't give a fuck. Like, I think this is funny. So I'm going to say it mm-hmm. to damn, to, to hell with them if they don't laugh. Like, <laughs> I think it's a funny joke, right? Like, I think mm-hmm. I've just lost that, uh, the pressure of like feeling like I'm judged and that I'm under a microscope and that sort of thing. Like there's a lot to be said for just not giving a shit and saying whatever pops into your head. Yeah. We love, we love babies for the same reason why we love 90 year olds, right? It's because they just do whatever they feel like doing and there's no filter around like caring about what how anybody reacts and and so it's kind of a circle of life in between those ages we kind of stuff it down and we we let ourselves become socialized to appear proper and do things other people want us to do but 
in that very beginning and in that very end, it's just, it's all good. Yeah. It's, it's all good. It's just, you're, we're free. Um, <laughs> what are, what are some things that you wish you had said yes to more often? Hmm. Well, we've already gone over the coaching part. Yeah. Uh, I would say, I would say that if I could travel more when I was younger, I would, I would have done that. You did a lot of traveling, right? I like did, you, you I did. did, but but I did a lot less than I would if I could go back into that phase of my life, right? Where, you know, I wasn't married and it was just me solo, no responsibilities and and willing to stay in youth hostels, right? So now that's not a thing. That's not going to be a thing for me anymore. I've upgraded my my quality of travel experiences, but... I liked meeting people in that way where it was like, you know, you're just sitting around in the youth hostel living room and then somebody pops in and then a conversation starts. And then the next thing you know, you're like hanging out and and going to eat. And then that person's your friend until like you travel to different places. Right. And and so that was really cool. And, and so I probably would go back and do a lot more of that, especially when I was playing online poker. I just, I just got kind of stuck in, you know, living in the same city and not really, I didn't really get that itch to travel until the poker was starting to, the spark was fading until then. It was just like, no, I'm just going to play and do my thing. And I got my friends here and this is great. And, and so that's what I would do if I could go back. Yeah. I mean, it's something that I love too, is just getting in a plane, having an adventure, going somewhere, being in a different environment than the one that I'm used to Mm -hmm. being in. Like that to me is I get a, get a sense of thrill and it's something that I have desperately missed with the pandemic and not being able to like travel at all. Like I am very much ready to hop on a plane and explore a different environment than the one that I, I've been in for the past over a year. Yeah. Yeah. It, it opens up different thoughts in your brain, different reflections inside of you when you're in a different environment, especially one that you've never been in before. Yeah, it smells different. The mm-hmm. sights, the sounds, everything's new. It's just something that, like, I'm I'm hardwired to just love. I love that that type of experience. Have you ever strongly believed something about poker, only to reverse course later on? And if so, what led to that change of belief? Besides coaching, <laughs> we've already covered the coaching change in you. I would say that something about efficiency right? That I never really believed that you could study in a way that didn't take, you know, your whole amount of time in order to get where you needed to go. And and by the end, I really found that, you know, if you really just focus in and target your specific weaknesses, you can, you can leave plenty of time to go do the other stuff. Uh, I hear all these people say, you know, anytime I hear somebody say, oh, I study five hours a day, I'm like, you are wasting your life. <laughs> right? You can, you cannot do this. Uh, you have to earn money. You can't just sit around thinking about the game all day. And, and it's mostly a mental issue, honestly, of people being afraid to put themselves out there. And so they cover it up by thinking they're investing wisely their time, but, you know, they're really just wasting it. So if you really get focused and targeted around identifying your weakness and then hitting it hard, you can really just turn a weakness into a strength pretty quickly because chances are you ain't that good. <laughs> and so so if you just consistently turn a weakness into a strength over and over, well, then you're good very quickly. 
and immersion. Again, it just comes down to like immersing yourself in, in specific spots that you're weak at and then putting yourself in that immersion until you're good at it, which doesn't take as long as you think. Yeah, and it, it ties into not falling into the social pressure aspect of like, I need to, my study, what's my study to play ratio? Like how many hours a day or how many hours a week should I be studying? Right? Like I can't count how many times folks have asked me that question. And if, if the listener of chasing poker greatness actually knew the amount of time I spent with targeted studying in my poker career, like it's laughable. It's like the times where I was like hated sitting in front of my computer, looking at my database, just trying to learn something. I mean, it's got to be sub 100 hours. I I just didn't do it. I played poker and I would learn. And if I ran across an interesting spot, I would look at it. And if I felt there was an area where I wasn't that good, I would just study it like on my own. But it would be like I wanted to do it. There was never a time where I studied and I didn't want to. I've never put poker study as like a little box I tick off on my daily schedule. It's just been like an organic process. And people think that they just need to study five hours or whatever it is. And like, it's, yeah, that, that whole thing to me is quite silly. And I, I think it just boils down to like the conventional, you know, the Twitter wisdom of poker players or the Reddit poker feedback of like poker to study ratio. What, what's optimal, what works, you know? Yeah. I mean, you look at People on Twitter bragging about, oh, I'm in the lab, going in the lab. I was in the lab today this much. I studied this much. I ran 20 sims. How many sims did you run today? Right? You did 19. I'm going to do 20. So I'm going to be, no, that's, this is not really how it works, right? You put in quality time and then you learn how to put in quality hours when you play, right? And then when you have quality study plus a high quality performance, you win. This is how you win money, not by clocking in, clocking out, which is ironic because poker players hate the idea of clocking in, clocking out. And yet they measure themselves by how many hours they put in of study, how many hands they put in, how many hours of play they sat in the chair, like it's some kind of badge of honor. But in reality, if you can lift your enjoyment of the study, lift the quality and the enjoyment of your play the volume will be there because it's what you like to do. So now you're a person who just gets to do what you like to do. So you're going to do more and more of it because you like it, right? Whereas if the whole thing is this painful struggle, you resent it the whole time you're doing it, even though you're out there bragging about how great you are and how much you know work you put in. The whole thing just doesn't feel quite right when you don't truly enjoy the process. So you fall in love with the process. Well, then the volume just magically shows up and you've got lots of money at the end of the year. Yeah. And when I say study, you know, I don't mean like discussing poker strategy with my friends because that's, that's always been fun to me. Mm. Like I enjoy, I'll, I'll talk strategy with like my inner circle for five or six hours straight. Like, because that's like fun study. I think of like, you know, my head down at my desk, just writing stuff out that I don't care about. And a lot of people use, study as this crutch of, you know, the reality is they're afraid to put in volume. They're afraid to play poker. And so they just say, I'm going to study poker 
for five hours a day when the reality is they're not studying to actively learn and become better poker players. They're just procrastinating because they're afraid of actually playing poker and putting in the volume. Yeah, when you've got so much of your worth tied up in what you do, then the prospect of failing is enough to turn you away from doing what you actually need to do to make it. The terrible cycle. It, it, it's really bad. I, I've seen in like an extreme case of somebody who just like wanted to have all the answers before they played poker, right? Try to like eliminate all the risk by studying 10 hours a day. And then ultimately what would happen was they'd finally feel like they're prepared, show up to play, and they would play for like two days and then they would like switch to a different format. It's like, now I'm going to learn how to play MTTs, right? It's like whatever they can do to prevent themselves from actually playing, that's the route that they're going to take. And, you know, in some cases, it's people just stopping playing poker entirely to move on to like the next shiny little object Mm -hmm. of, you know, crypto trading or whatever it is. And the reality is like, the problem is not with your preparation. The problem's with your execution and you showing up and, and actually being in the arena and feeling uncomfortable. Yeah. A lot of people like the idea of being a poker player more than the actual act of being a poker player. That's definitely true. I've, I've felt that at certain points in my life myself, but it doesn't work out well. No, it doesn't. It really doesn't. Um, so a couple more questions, man. We'll wrap up this round two Chasing Poker Greatness conversation what's a project that you're working on that's near and dear to mr jason sue's heart well my one-on-one coaching program is like my favorite thing i get to do these days because i really feel like i've come into my peak as a facilitator of people getting as present as they can get and really learning how to face these issues that are holding themselves back as much as possible and opening them up to new possibilities, playing through, you know, the fear, the adrenaline and all that stuff. And so that's just like the highlight of my day. Anytime I get to hop on a call with somebody and work them, work them through a process that just completely breaks down an old story, an old habit, an old block to their performance. And it just makes me very, very happy that I get to be paid to do that. Give me a, give me a, tangible example of like a before and after a problem that one of your people experience and then through you two working together one-on-one how they overcame said problem and the impact that that made in their poker journey one of my first clients and and this is actually common through lots of lots of my clients have wives and children and uh, the, the the most common compliment I'll get at the end of working with somebody is a, is my wife thanks you. That's like always, that, I've heard that like so many times that my wife thanks you, right? And I really take that as a big deal because I'm not just interested in helping you perform better in poker, but also be the best version of you, the most conscious, present, engaged version of you when you're with your loved ones, right? It's all the same. And so, yeah, one of my first clients, he, super elite player, making tons of money, and was able to never really punt when he was playing, but he would just bottle it all up and then, you know, lash out, um, you know, at the family as soon as the session's over. And so what we did was we put together, you know, a little process for him to learn how to transition from the game into the family life so that he can actually feel the different parts of himself moving from one to the other, the part of himself he needed to access to play poker and be super cutthroat and almost like violent, if you will. 
um, to, you know, the softer side of being a father and a husband, right? To learn how to like create that transition so he could feel the energy shift inside of him. And also to learn how to really express the emotions and feel them and acknowledge them as he was playing so that he wouldn't have to like dump them out on his family afterwards as well, right? If you put your emotions somewhere and you stuff them away when you're playing, they're coming out somewhere, whether it's after your session or if you're, you know, get very skilled at it, maybe like 10 years later when you like blow up a building, right? The longer you keep it in there, the bigger the explosion is going to be later, right? And this is just how it is. So the way that I really want people to go about it is to learn how to just release that energy, feel those emotions, ride those waves like you're surfing them. And that way you get to enjoy the feeling of actually being clear emotionally, available emotionally to the people who really want your true attention, right? Nobody likes the poker player who walks out of the office and then is still thinking about the, you know, pot they just lost while they're talking about something else, right? Nobody wants to be with you when you're halfway in the game and halfway with them. They want your full attention. They deserve your full attention, your full availability. And so many people create structures and methods of going through life where they're just never fully available for connection with the people who care about them most. And that's, that's really shitty. Yeah. And you know, the side benefits of that is that you have a happier, more fulfilling relationship with your spouse and with your kids, which makes you happier when you go to sleep and it makes you happier when you show up to play poker Mm -hmm. and it makes you more resilient at the poker table because everything in the macro is going, going, going very, very well. And there's just so many benefits from improving those relationships. And ultimately, at the end of the day, at least I know in my situation, it's I've played poker to support and spend time with the people who are close to me, right? Like poker is the mechanism in which I provide for the people that I love. And if the mechanism is making me unhappy and killing my relationships with the people that I love, that is like counterproductive in this massive, massive way. So yeah, I can see that like make helping folks facilitating those upgrades is just huge, huge boon to their life and poker EV. Yeah, you're either always either in an upward cycling spiral of family life, friendship life, health life, and poker life going well and synergizing together to bring the whole thing up, or they're all spiraling downward together. There's really no neutral, I don't think. Absolutely. Which is why like in my optimization sessions that I did with my clients, a lot of the discussions was about their relationships and about the macro and how it's affecting them at the poker table. And like resolving one of them affects the other in a big way. Like you, there are multiple ways to go about improving your poker game. It doesn't, they don't all have to be poker related. Yeah. All the knowledge in the world doesn't matter if you hate yourself and you hate your life. And cause you're just kind of like sabotage yourself when you're playing the game because you don't like your life. Absolutely. And, um, final, final question. Where can the chasing poker greatness audience in case they're, they're living under a, a rock somewhere and have never heard of Jason Sue and poker with presence. Where can they find you on the World Wide web? On the, on the off chance that you haven't found me on the World Wide web yet, you can find me at pokerwithpresence.com. on the off chance that you haven't read the book poker with presence yet. You can get that on Amazon 
on the off chance that you haven't seen me posting on Twitter yet, you can find me. It's at Jason B. Sue. And also, if you're not on the VIP newsletter, Jason also writes every Monday's edition, so you can catch him there too. Man, it's been great having you back on. I'm going to go back and uh, get in my my quote-unquote lab, try to make a, a round three Chasing Poker Greatness interview template, and we'll have you back on. Thanks, man. Really appreciate it. Appreciate the invite as always, man. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Chasing Poker Greatness. If you have yet to subscribe to the show, please take a second to do so on Apple Podcasts or wherever your favorite place to listen to podcasts may be. For more content from me, Coach Brad, please visit our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash enhance your edge, and I'll see you next time.